Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. The December insurrection in London posed the question of power in a very direct way. But in and of itself, it couldn't resolve the question of power. It still remained firmly in the hands of the king and the court clique. Not only that, but of course, the the very insurrection itself created a mood of panic and terror among the propertied classes including some sections that had been in opposition previously, the moderate opposition, if you like, was beginning to move away from the progressive camp, to use uh, that expression, and to close ranks around the monarchy, around the royal family, as the principal bulwark of of, uh, reaction. Now, the end of the movement, it lasted just for three days, by the 30th of, of December, it had uh, virtually petered out for the time being. And the fact that they'd managed to survive, they managed to resist the initial onslaught of the masses, gave the king and the court clique a certain uh, uh, influx of confidence in themselves. The king began to as- assemble around himself uh, an armed force of volunteers on the 30th of December, he received a powerful uh, uh, support when uh, between three and five hundred uh, young gentlemen uh, appeared, marched on the, uh, the royal palace, offering their services to give their lives in defense of the king and queen, who were making appeals, stating that he was, this is the king's words, compelled at our great charges to entertain a guard for securing us from danger. This was, of course, a deliberate move in the direction of of plans for the king's counterattack, counteroffensive, and a clear preparation to crush the, 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 the insurrection before it developed any further. In this uh, move to reaction, of course, he was supported by sections of the property property classes, not just the nobility and the the wealthier gentry, which you could expect, but also, of course, from the oligarchy of wealthier uh, citizens, wealthy merchants in London itself, uh, particularly the Lord Mayor and the clique around him, which uh, rallied to his support. Charles sent them a letter on the 31st of December, complaining about the, quote, many tumultuary tumultuary and riotous assemblies of people about our palaces of Whitehall and Westminster to the great disturbance of us and our parliament. The Common Council replied that, uh, of course, the king, this court, neither this court nor any particular member thereof hath in any hand in these tumultuous and riotous proceedings, 
which have been of great trouble and affrightment of his majesty's good su subjects in the city, that's to say the, the wealthy, the fat cats in the city, and that they and every, uh, every, every one of them disavow and disclaim the same, and shall do his best, that's the, the Lord Mayor, shall do his best to endeavor to suppress or prevent any tumults or riotous assemblies that shall thereafter be attempted within this city. Uh, this is, this, it's clear. All the forces of reaction are beginning to coalesce around the monarchy, around the court clique, in uh, an attempt to crush what? To crush what is increasingly perceived as a threat to property, to private property. This is the reaction of the property-owning classes uh, in the form of a party of order, which increasingly uh, demands action, action should be taken to crush the revolution. At the center of this, of course, is the court, court clique itself. And here we can leave, leave behind the tumult and the, the noise and the din of the streets. And uh, turn our attention to the, the cozy and intimate world of the, of the court, where a group of uh, super privileged, uh, wealthy people, cocooned in this uh, private little world of the court, surrounded by, by luxuries and uh, trappings of regal power, uh, these people had no idea, really speaking, of the realities of a fast-changing world outside the palace walls. They couldn't envisage the, 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 the reason for the, why the people had gone mad as they did in, in December. They couldn't understand it. They had no understanding, in other words, of, of the, the, the depth of feeling, the depth of anger and indignation which had gripped the masses, had gripped the population. And they had no conception of the power of the, of the powerful tide which was about to engulf them all. Charles, in this uh, environment, was being, now being constantly pressurized by the clique, <clears throat> by the queen in particular, the queen and the ladies of court in particular, were always putting pressure into to, to take action, to, to deal with these uh, insolent uh, parliamentarians who were never satisfied, you see. <clears throat> and from Charles's point of view, we could see his, his point of view, Here he'd attempted to compromise, he'd attempted to, to uh, do all kinds of things attempted to be reasonable as he was yet, you know. And all that, all that he'd achieved by so, do, so doing is to embolden his, his, his enemies who are continually asking for more. And therefore the conclusion is quite clear, isn't it? The conclusion is, since these people will not listen to reason, then they, they must be dealt with by force. And that was the argument that was conti continually being raised. That if only the king would show a little bit more determination, and energy in facing down his enemies, then of course the problem would be easily solved. So easy, yes, in this environment, this cozy little environment of the court, these spoiled brats of the court circle, the pampered aristocracy, and their ladies, of course, it, it is easily solved in words, in conversations. Strike boldly at them, they told him. This is a quote of a contemporary. Strike boldly at them, they told him. Arrest their leaders, have them tried, tried and condemned and executed, and threaten the rest with the same fate. Then go on the offensive, and you will soon be back in the saddle, quote, unquote.
Of course, Charles was only too uh, willing to listen to this talk, although being cautious by nature, being vacillating by nature, he constantly hesitated before taking the, uh, the step which had to, be, had to be taken. Perhaps what, what swayed him ultimately may have been the rumor, when rumors reached his ears, that Parliament was intending to impeach his wife, the Queen, for allegedly conspiring with the Irish rebels. This may have played uh, a role, whatever the reason, he finally made up his mind, eventually. And he decided one fine day to instruct his Attorney General to drop a charge of treason against one member of the House of Lords and five members of the House of Commons. The names, the names on the list, celebrated names, the celebrated list, were as follows. John Pym, of course. John Hamden, of course, also. Denzel Hollis, he was one of those that held down the speaker, if you recall, a few, a few years earlier. Sir Arthur Heselrig, William Stroud, and Lord Malneville, member of the House of Lords, who later became the Earl of Manchester. And uh, so the, the dice was cast, the fateful dice was cast. This was a, a moment of decision, a change in the whole situation. What Charles basically was aiming at was neither more nor less than a coup d'etat. And on the 3rd of January, the House of Commons was thrown into a state of astonishment at the sudden appearance of an officer of the King in the House who read out a list, not just of anybody, I mean, these, uh, the, 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 the men that I've just mentioned were five of the most uh, popular and influential members of the House to be tried on a, on a charge of, of treason, which of course is a, a serious matter. And on hearing this, of course, the, the, the Commons uh, decided to take uh, defensive, def defensive action, if you like. They said that they would take this into consideration. <laughs> now, of course, when this, message, when this message came back, they also said that any, anyone that was uh, attempted to be seized in this way would have the right to resist. To resist arrest, since this constituted clearly a breach of parliamentary privilege. Charles sent another, actually sent two, I believe, two messages were sent to Parliament instructing them very clear, in very clear language that these five people had to be handed over for arrest on a charge of treason. The Parliament responded by saying that they would take it into consideration. That's very nice. Very nice. Yes, but, but it's not the message that Charles wanted to receive. He wasn't expecting that Parliament should take anything into consideration he was expecting that they should obey his commands without further delay. And of course, when, when, when this reply, this insolent reply from Parliament was received in court circles, it, it, it caused absolute, uh, an absolute furore. Uh, the, the, the atmosphere in court, I think now you, you could probably have cut it with a, with a knife. The king's uh, friends and advisors were in a state of absolute uh, fury, infuriated and frustrated at Parliament's uh, open defiance of the royal authority. They were they stepped up their pressure on him to to react. And Henrietta Maria, in particular, the queen, flew into a fury, probably influenced by the fact that she'd heard these rumours, that she was probably in for the chop, unless something was done about it. There's no question at all that she must have played an important role in pressurizing her husband. After all, don't forget the king was also her husband. 
and husbands can be pressurized. Uh, it would have been interesting if, if, if only there could have been a, a microphone to record their pillow talk. It would have been quite uh, interesting. We don't know exactly what was, what was stated, but uh, according to one source, she said, and I quote to the king, this is the king of England she's talking to, <clears throat> but also her husband. Go, you coward, and pull these rogues out, out by the ears, or never see my face more. I think that's a direct, uh, a direct uh, clear message, isn't it? You, you, you get rid of these, these bastards or else I'm, I'm, I'm divorcing you. In effect, that's what she said. Because he wouldn't have, wouldn't have amounted to that in practice. But nevertheless, Charles was under intense pressure, both political pressure and even moral pressure here, you could say, from his wife to, to make a move, which he proceeded to do. Because on the following morning, the fateful day, Fateful day and a decisive day in English history, actually. Tuesday, the 4th of January, 1642, the king went in person to the House of Commons at the head of a motley crew of armed men, described by one observer as soldiers, papists, and others, in order to make, make the arrests himself. Absolutely astonishing, if you can imagine Queen Elizabeth going to Parliament to make an arrest herself. It really comes to something. Furthermore, of course, by entering into Parliament, which he did, Charles entered into the House of Commons, he was, he was breaching a long-established uh, rule of parliamentary privilege. The king was not allowed to go, even to enter the House of, 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 uh, of Commons. He always uh, conducted his affairs from the House of Lords. And therefore, just to step inside the building of the House of Commons, was a flagrant breach of parliamentary privilege. This act in itself would have had a, a dramatic effect, except for one little snag. The parliament had been tipped off. They knew he was coming. This itself, but they must tell us something about the crisis of the regime, because it seems, it's not certain, but it seems that they were probably tipped off almost certainly by a lady of the court by the name of Lucy Hay. I won't go into that, but anyway, they were tipped off by somebody, and certainly it must have been somebody close to the king, because uh, this would have been a closely guarded secret. And whereupon, of course, the, the five members uh, fled. They, they escaped, and they went to the city. That's significant. They went straight to the city, where they were sure to get support from the revolutionary masses, from the Puritans, from... Uh, left-wing aldermen such as Isaac Pennington, the future regicide. It is, it, is, it, is, it is assumed that they went to Coleman Street, actually, the center of rebellion. Either way, they ended up in the city. They weren't in the parliament when Charles calmly walked in. He just imagine the scene. Charles enters the parliament and calmly, although he must realize that this would cause an uproar, he calmly walked into the silent chambers, absolutely, I suppose, stunned silence, silent chamber, and sat in the speaker's chair, asking very politely, can you please uh, vacate uh, your chair? I have need of it, or words to, the, to that uh, effect. And where, whereupon he delivered a speech which began, and I've got the text here, it's too long to read in its entirety, but a couple of lines, <laughs> give you a flavor of it. Gentlemen, he said politely, Gentlemen, I am sorry for this occasion of coming unto you. 
Yesterday I sent a sergeant at arms upon a very important occasion to apprehend uh, some that uh, by my command were accused of high treason, where, whereunto I did expect obedience and not a message. I expect obedience and not a message of taking things into consideration. Looking around the hall, we can use your imagination to imagine the scene. Looking around the hall and not finding any one of the men on his list present, he uttered the famous phrase, Well, I see the birds have flown. <laughs> yes, indeed, they had flown, which caused him an awkward situation. So he then turned to the speaker and asked the speaker, William Lentil, whether he knew if, if any of these were present were on the list. And the speaker fell upon his knees, it's a dramatic scene, fell upon his knees in front of the, the, the king and addressed, the, addressed him with the famous words, I have, sir, neither eyes to see nor tongue to speak in this place, but as the house is pleased to direct me, whose servant I am. And that's it. <laughs> the birds had flown, and since they had flown, there was nothing else for him to do. A little bit of an, a, melodrama, a melodramatic exit, a bit of a, a bit of a letdown, if you like, after, after the dramatic entrance into the parliament. He, he leaves with yes, he leaves with his with his hands empty. He's achieved precisely nothing. He has to leave the house with as much dignity as he could salvage from this utter humiliation. And at this point, the entire house erupts immediately into a scene of rowdy uh, protests. In a state of great excitement, a voice is heard. Someone called out one word, privilege. Privilege, and that word subsequently spread like wildfire throughout the whole population. And the, the King of England had to leave the House of Parliament with shouts of privilege ringing in his ears. Now, this famous scene is well known, it's been repeated for many years, it's taught in all the schools and all the textbooks. It's, it's dramatic enough, sure. Sure, it's dramatic enough, but ne not nearly as dramatic as what happened afterwards. And that's not generally known. The House, by the way, immediately had an emergency session and voted by 170 votes to, 30, to 86. So Charles still had some support in the House. It uh, decided to dissolve itself into a committee and to adjourn to, to the Guildhall, that's in the city of London. Again, the same thing. In other words, and this is the important point, at this point, the leaders of the Commons throw themselves at the mercy of the city of London. And everything now depends on one thing and one thing alone, and that's the loyalty of the city, of the citizens of London. Brian Manning, in a very good book on the English Revolution, writes the following, I quote, it was a decisive moment in history and the decision lay not with the king, not with the parliament, not with the nobility and gentry, but with armed soldiers, not, I beg your pardon, not with armed soldiers, not with the Lord Mayor's uh, aldermen or the Commons Council, but with the mass of ordinary people in London. Oh, yes. And London was now in a state of, again, of open insurrection. A terrible storm had, had begun in the August Chamber of the House of Commons, but it was now blowing through every street and every marketplace. And it threatened to bring, a, bring the whole edifice of power 
crashing down about their ears. The people were arming themselves. Oh yes, they get they got whatever they could get their hands on. Halberds, swords, axes, pikes, muskets, anything. And wherever he looked, the, the, the king began to realize that he'd sown the winds and now must reap a whirlwind. The next morning, all the shops in the city were shut. This was, in effect, a general strike in the, in the, in the, in the conditions of those times, yeah, a general strike. And it is stated with every man holding his ha ha halberd and weapons in readiness. Now, you see, Charles had uh, made a bad mistake. He stirred up a, stirred up a hornet's nest. And now he needed, to take, he needed to take urgent action or all would be lost. He brought troops and arms to his palace at Whitehall, ready to defend it in case of attack. Yes, but he also needed urgently to find some points of support in London itself. And where was he to get this uh, support? Well, obviously, logically, he expected a favorable response from the, 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 the fat cats, the fat cats, like the people who run the city of London now from the city elders, the respectable, decent men of property. Surely they'd be on his side and not side with the rabble in the streets. So therefore, on the 5th of January, the king went to the city to address a special meeting of the common council called at his request in Guildhall. At this meeting, he explained his reasons for taking the actions that he took for going to parliament and so on, and asked the city not to harbor or protect the five accused members. Uh, in, in response to their protest, some of them did protest, he assured them that they, would, they should have a just, a just trial according to the laws of the land. That didn't, uh, uh, didn't calm their consciences, the consciences of many of them. The meeting, in fact, was split. It showed an openly split. During the meeting, which ended in, in uproar, one party cried out, God bless the king, while the other party shouted, Parliament, privileges of Parliament. An, an open split, an open, and of course, which Charles therefore must have been horrified. But as he left, the, 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 this ruling stratum was divided. But as the king went into the outer hall, which was filled with, quote, a multitude of the ruder people, poor people, there was no such division. There was complete unanimity. And a great cry went up, privileges of parliament, which became the general slogan of the, of the day. The king left the, left the guild hall and went to dine with the sheriff, Sir George Garrett. And as he passed, he noticed that all the shops were shut, general strike, the people standing at their doors, standing at their doors with swords and halberds. The entire city was in a state of insurrection, a state of uproar. And uh, all of the shouts, there was no division here, all of the shouts were in favor of parliament, and some even were directed against the person of the king. This is a new development. The rainy streets were full of people shouting, privilege of parliament, privilege of parliament, as, as the king's carriage moved along the streets. Some called out, to your tents, O Israel. You might not, not understand that, it's from the Bible. It's the ancient Hebrew cry of rebellion. Uh, in other words, in other words, things from Charles's point of view, things were not looking good. The people of England have been silenced for so many years of monarchical tyranny. Now they demanded to be heard, and Charles, whether he liked it or not, had to hear their message loud and clear. 
The king had achieved nothing by his coup de théâtre, but it provoked fury on the streets of London. And you just imagine, imagine Charles's response at the sight of a multitude of poor people, apprentices, fishwives, laborers, cobblers, the lower orders of society, rioting on the streets and even pounding on the doors of the royal carriage. Oh yes, it must have horrified him and terrified him. Well, at least he had a decent dinner ready for him at Garrett's house, the sheriff's house. But even there, I, I, I quote, Garrett's house, during, while he sat there supping whatever he was eating, must have been quite a nice meal, I guess. But the house was beset and the streets lead, leading onto it thronged with people, thousands of them, thousands of them, flocking from all parts of the city and the, and the clamor still was, privileges of parliament. This tumult uh, swelled, swelled to that, swelled to that height that the king in his return was in great danger. Just imagine that. Uh, again, another quote, a rude multitude followed his quotes, shouting privileges of parliament, privileges of parliament in a most undutiful manner, pressing upon, uh, pressing upon, looking into and laying hold of his quotes. Nay, in defiance of his, of his, of his sacred, sacred person and authority, that seditious pamphlet of Walker's two years tense of Israel was thrown it was thrown either into or very near the coach. The demonstration made a, such an impression on his majesty. This is the words now of the Venetian ambassador, quite, a, quite an acute observer of events. The Venetian ambassador said, this demonstration made an impression on his majesty. The king had the worst day in London, the worst day in London, the worst day in his life, that ever, the, the worst day that he'd ever had. The good king was somewhat moved moved, in other words, he was thoroughly shaken. And I believe he was glad when he was at home. I think he was glad also. So what we have here is, is what? You have the situation where the conflict, which started as a fight between sections of the privileged classes, of the ruling class, to decide who controlled the state, now becomes, it spills over onto the streets. And once it grips the minds of the, of the masses, it requires an entirely new dynamic and a life of its own, which is difficult, if not impossible, to control. That's the point. Just look at what happened to the Lord Mayor, the, the, top, the, the top fat cat in the city. As the Lord Mayor, Alderman and Recorder were, as his secretary, as the Lord Mayor, Alderman and Recorder were returning from escorting the King to Temple, they were met with cries of, remember the protestation, and called half-protesters. Near Ludgate, they were set upon by some rude uh, person. My, my, Lord, my Lord Mayor being plucked off his horse, dragged off his horse, and some of the aldermen. This is interesting now. The citizens' wives, the women, poor women, the citizens' wives fell upon the Lord Mayor and pulled his chain from his neck and called him a traitor to the city and, the, and to the liberties of it. And had and had liked to have torn him, him and the recorder to pieces. Escaping, they and some of the aldermen were forced to make their, their way home on foot. They didn't have a horse to, to ride on anymore. Abuse being shouted at them all the way. Now, I could give many more examples. I think I've said sufficient for you to understand. 
This is an all-out revolutionary insurrection. London is now out of the control of the authorities, out of the control of the king, out of the control of the Lord Mayor, of the Common Council, of anybody. The masses are in control. I think Charles by now must have been having second thoughts, but frankly, it was a little bit late, late in the day. The damage has been done and couldn't be undone by words. On the streets, there was increased excitement. Events were taking place at, a, at, an, at an alarming rate, and they were taking a turn for the worse. All of Charles's plans now lay in ruins. Just look at the, at the turnabout. You know, not long before the events I'm describing, not just a, a few weeks before, a few days before even, the king had possessed a sizable party. In the, even in the lower house, as you see, even now he had votes in the, a reasonable amount of votes in the lower house, as you can see from the votes uh, that I've mentioned. And a great majority which he always possessed in the House of Peers, the House of Lords. Even, even after the bishops were removed, that still remained the case. But, and this is what Clarendon has got, got to say, very important, what changed? But, says, says uh, Clarendon, by the present fury of the people, that's the point, by the present fury of the people, as by an inundation, were all these obstacles swept away, and every rampart of royal authority laid level with the ground. Laid level with the ground. Charles by now was thoroughly shaken. I think he must have lost all hope, all authority had gone. He's shaken by his experience. And filled, of course, now, now he was terrified, filled with, with fear for his own safety. And particularly the fear for his wife, who he was afraid that uh, she was about to be uh, impeached or accused as a Catholic. And quite possibly would end up the same way as Tom Thomas Wentworth. Well, he didn't want that to occur. In other words, Charles had now run out of options. All the power that he had held in his hands, not long ago, not how quickly it, how quickly it collapses once it's faced with the might of the people, the popular movement, decides to flee. He no longer feels safe in London. He no longer feels feel safe for him or his family. They don't feel safe. And therefore he fled to the relative safety of Hampton Court, which is some, for those of you who don't know, some miles away on the River Thames. He went upriver and of course uh, the whole scene would have been quite uh, unpleasant. The, the, uh, the masses were triumphant. They'd be, they, were, they were chanting, what has become of the king and his cavaliers, and whither have they fled? Good question. Yes, Charles had fled. He fled by boat at night, I think, up the River Thames towards Hampton Court. And he remained outside of London thereafter for the duration of the Civil War, which is about to start. This is the start of the Civil War. When the king moves from London, that's the start of it. There is no other solution possible other than the solution of taking to arms one side or another. The next time that Charles returned to his capital, it would be as a prisoner awaiting trial and execution. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider or visit our website at www.socialist.net. 
And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.